Woohoo! Good morning, guys. Welcome to another episode, episode 70 of the Millennial Momentum Podcast. This is your host, Tommy Tahoe Alemo, and I'm on a journey for a better life. I want to get you know 1% better every single day, make more money, get better at my craft, have better relationships, get in better shape, uh, set myself up for the long run. And I know you are too. I, I thank you for coming on the journey. Very grateful you're listening and really, really excited about uh, today's interview that I'm bringing out. And I'll get to that in a second. But uh, I want to give a quick shout out to the fan of the week, uh, Max Altshuler. Uh, CEO of Sales Hacker. They just got acquired uh, by Outreach IO. We'll get to them in a second. Congrats to Max and the team. He actually was a guest on episode 31 of the podcast, and he introduced me to today's guest. So um, Max is, you know, he's top notch when it comes to sales and uh, millennial career development and remote lifestyle the guys traveling everywhere so check him out on instagram hack it max um for today's interview really excited for uh manny medina he's the ceo of outreach io and if you're not familiar outreach io is one of the hard, hottest uh tech startups uh, probably in the world right now um it, i don't think that's overstating it they are worth over 500 million dollars and he started them only a few years ago with with three of his friends, and um, you know before that, he led sales efforts at a major division of Microsoft. Before that, he was the number four employee at AWS, the cloud platform from Amazon. He also has an MBA from Harvard Business School. He has a master's in computer science from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he is a genius, and I just love talking to Manny. I mean. He has so many really great things that he does from whether it's running the company, right? In the in the morning, he fist bumps every single employee. They have a few hundred. He literally goes around, fist bumps every single one in the morning. He doesn't have an office. He doesn't even have a desk. He just has his old banker's chair from the 50s uh, that he brings around to different places and sits in different spots uh, throughout the office, depending on what team needs help. Um He's just a, a humble guy. We bonded over Jocko Willing. We bonded over uh, Bulletproof Coffee. And he has some really great feedback for people. Uh, and one of my favorite pieces before we get into it is talking about, I asked him what makes a, a rep a successful rep in the long run. And not only is Manny come from sales, but his he has salespeople that work for him. And his whole customer base is sales. He sells to salespeople. Um, it makes them more efficient. And he says that the best salespeople are those that don't, they don't get complacent. They can erase the scoreboard. Whatever you did last month, last quarter, last year, good or bad, you erase it and you move forward. And as someone that has hit quarters and someone that has missed quarters, it is difficult either way to erase the scoreboard and stay hungry and stay focused. And, um, you know, that's very challenging, and the people that I see are the best salespeople do follow that, and I think that was just great advice that he gave. A lot more jam-packed in this interview. Without further ado, my conversation with Mr. Manny Medina. Enjoy. All right, Manny Medina, good morning, man. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, excited to do this. So before we, before we get into all the topics, I have to clear the air on two things that, that I think... Um, 
are true about you and I, I know are true about me. And I want to see if this is right. So from my research. So first is that you wake up at 445 every day in part due to Jocko Willink. And the second is that you make a killer bulletproof coffee. Both things are true. <laughs> awesome, man. Yeah, I, uh, I got my bulletproof right in front of me, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> so do I. That's funny. <laughs> Unreal. What's the what's the recipe? You say you make a great one. Like, do you do you put something in there that's like out of the ordinary? Um, I I like to put a a little bit of um, collagen. Okay. In the morning, that makes it a little bit more. That makes it a little thicker, and it also helps recover your body. So I wake up early so I can work out. It helps sort of recover your your muscles and 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 sort of make your joints feel a little bit better. Awesome. Um, so when I feel um. When I feel a little, a, l- a little wild, I put a little bit of, of cocoa powder in it. <laughs> it tastes like a mocha. So only when you're feeling crazy. Only when I'm feeling crazy. Cool, cool, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on, and um, you know, I want to get into. There's so many things that I want to talk about. I crowdsourced uh, a lot of questions from the audience too, so I'm excited for that. But before we get into outreach and what you're doing now, you have a really interesting background. Um, and you had a ton of experience before launching your company. So I'm, I'm curious of, are there any lessons that you learned early on in your career that you think have significantly helped you today? Yeah, but the majority of my entrepreneurship sort of um, upbringing happened. Um, I was a really, I was a very early employee at Amazon Web Services, not at Amazon per se, but at Amazon Web Services. Um, I joined, I was about employee number four or five or so um, in that group. And this is in 2003. So I was just coming out of grad school. Um, I got hired at Amazon. At the time when I came out of business school, the the market was actually pretty bad. Um, It was two years after 9-11. It's actually a year and some after 9-11. You know, the market was just turning around. Not that many people were hiring. And Amazon was just hiring a lot of people and the interviews were grueling. And making it through was sort of like a badge of honor. So we, you know, I came out and I took a job with a group that was that was relatively small. And at that point, it was transitioning under a, under a guy who, who now everybody knows, Andy Jassy. So the, what I learned there is 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 sort of what I don't know if you heard Jeff Bezos say this, but you have to be strategically patient and tactically impatient. What that means is that once you know where you're going. You know, there will be many routes to get there. There will be many setbacks. There will be delays and there will be other things, but you just have to stay the course. Amazon Web Services as a cloud infrastructure was early to the market by 10 years. And it wasn't until year 10 when it sort of like had that pop. And now, of course, it dominated the market. But that wasn't obvious at all back then. So having that faith in something that you believe in, having that certainty that something is going to happen, and just to stay with it for as long as it takes until it makes it happen, that's, that's one of my very early lessons that I learned there that sort of allowed me to, to stay the course and continue executing here at Outreach. That's interesting. And so how do you, how do you decipher between that and, you know, say you're Bezos and it's year eight or year nine and you're not seeing the return that you thought you would? Like, how do you know when it's not a great idea versus this is the right idea and it just hasn't been enough time yet? That's a great question, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't have the answer. And there is a very fine line between obstinate and crazy. And the 
I think that you have markers. So one of the markers is, are your customers really, really getting value out of your offering, out of your product or your service? Um, as you know, group talent is a, um, outreach is a pivot from group talent. And, you know, we stayed with group talent for about two years. And, you know, the, you, know you may ask me why two years, but then you know anything on year one. And year one is the obstination, right? We're going to make this through. We're going to throw everything at the wall. And year two is when we realize that just the customers are not that excited about the offering. Like we're not that different, that there is no superpower to what we do. Whereas at, at, at Amazon Web Services, when they came out, they were a hosting solution, just like many other hosting solutions out there. But as, that start, as they started providing additional services that were sort of different than just a straight up hosting, when they started offering storage and S3 and you know search and you know, a unified checkout pipeline. So you can do all these things on your own website and sort of hold your infrastructure somewhere else. Things are starting to go to look a little different. And Amazon, be, you know, Amazon Web Services has started becoming something else. And, and you can just see the growth. And the interesting thing was that the growth was all organic. Like Amazon didn't do marketing for a very long time. And all you saw was people just signing up, using it, paying it, paying by the drink and just continue to grow in that, in that, in that fashion. And that's sort of when a customer really... Um, is getting value out of the product and keeps coming back and keeps upgrading, especially in a situation in which you can let go at any point in time. When that person comes back every month and continues to pay you, you are into something special. And that's when you know that you have to just stay the course and keep doubling down. Actually, one of the biggest mistakes I see startups do is sort of quit a little bit too early or like burn too hot because they raise a lot of money. You know what I mean? Sometimes you are in that sort of, you know, crossing the chasm period in which you just have to invest a little slowly you know what I mean? Get the product right, but stay the course. And as long as you do that, you know, you'll write it out. If we take it back to the early days of you're at Microsoft, you left to start group talent. Uh, from my understanding is that before the idea of group talent, you had, you, you, you uncovered the team, right? You, you created the team uh, of people around you. And I actually just finished reading Good to Great by Jim Collins. And that was one of the major points was get the team first before you get the idea. And is that, I don't know if that was intentional or if it just kind of worked out that way, but I'd love to hear your take on that. So that, that is a, that is a really excellent point. So I started with, before group talent, um, Andrew Kinzer and I got into tech stars with a different idea that was, you know, stupid, you know, in the face of it. <laughs> and we sort of pivoted within week one of tech stars. We were, the bottom, we graduated at the bottom of the class on Techstars. I think we were second to last, if not last, out of that class. And, at, and, and then because we pivoted so much and we sort of like got lost in the desert a little bit, we met our other two co-founders doing Techstars. And that's how we started Group Talent. And, and Group Talent tried to be a marketplace for, for talent and specifically developers. And we, we tried to sort of get the marketplace dynamics going over the span of two years. And you could never get out of the sort of becoming an agency. You see what I mean? Like a, a, a market is something that kind of clears itself. An agency is when you are repping, you know, a good to somebody else and getting paid for the transaction. So we could never get out of the agency world. And eventually we decided, you know, we had one, we were kind of like living hand to mouth. We are, you know, paying our bills as, as we're making money. We're kind of breaking even. And we had a bad December. I remember this clearly. We had a bad December and we're like, everybody's tired. Nobody's excited about, you know, going another go at this. And I remember having this inside voice telling me, we have four incredible 
passionate individuals or talented in their own ways, that's our asset. Our asset is not group talent or whatever IP we build. The asset is the fact that we can run through walls. Like we have touch bottom, we can get up from here. And when you have a team that is committed to each other and is really have each other's back and, it, and, 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 and it's that talented, meaning you know that they can do anything, all you have to do is point them in the right direction. Just find a big market, pick a problem and go, and they will figure it out. And that was sort of, that. I, I, I think that that was my biggest insight. And I credit, I credit the team for, for really getting around that and being like, yeah, let's, let's just go at it again. Let's just go build something else. And what we realized is that we, you know, we're, a, we're a product team. So as a product team or an engineering team, it, you know, if, you, if you just give us a big market, we'll build a solution. That was sort of like the, the zero point insight. Now, the second insight was also that we built this internal tool that was getting us you know, 40 to 60% reply rates on cold emails. And, and that, was, that was the second piece of insight. But the first insight was really team. And, and when, we, when, when we realized that, that, that as a team, we're invincible, then nothing can stop you. Yeah, I love that. And, and the way that it, uh, group talent turned into outreach was kind of circumstantial and there's no money in the bank and you see that people are more interested in the way that you're you know, like booking meetings and you're, you're telling them about that solution and it, it kind of uh, spurred the company that way. But w- was there ever a point where the money's low in the bank and you haven't really gotten a ton of proof of concept out of outreach yet where you thought, Hey, like this is just really hard. Like maybe, maybe I want to go back to Microsoft or another big company where it's a safer play and you know there's more stability. Like, did that did that cross your mind or your team's mind? Was that a conversation at all? I, you know, I I want to I really I, I it didn't really it really didn't. So there was a couple of times that it got so there was this one particular time where it got really dicey, where so we zero in on the idea of of outreach and. Outreach was both a workflow and an automation tool. And, and we zero in on the automation piece and we figured that we can make this work. So we managed to raise two months of cash. So about four months of cash, actually. And then we go out and, and we build it. And month three and a half, give or take, we cannot get reply detection to work exactly right. Like they, it was missing some emails and customers were getting frustrated because they thought that things were automated and they weren't. And, 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 and we are realizing that, you know, reply detection had a lot to do with, uh, with encoding and you have to do other tricks. And Gordon comes to me and he's like, guys, I looked at this thing. We have to build everything from scratch and I need two months. Mind you, we had a month of cash in the bank and no customers. And I was selling a deck because the product was kind of rickety and barely up and running. So... Even at that point, at the lowest point in which, like, guys, we've been at this for two and a half years. We're almost out of cash. What are we going to do? Even at that point, I was like, I can race on this. I can. We were so close to the solution, and I was so excited about the potential, and our customers were so excited about the potential that I'm like, I can can raise angels. And the thing about San Francisco is that – the thing about racing from angels is that that it creates a bit of a network effect that – you find an angel that is well-connected and that person sort of sends one well-written email to their network and all of a sudden you got half a million dollars in the bank. You see what yep. I mean? So is, it, it, I know it sounds hard and it sounds like a lot of hustle, but it, you know, if you play your cards right with, you know, between AngelList and LinkedIn and your own connections, you can, you can raise a small angel round 
pretty quickly if you find, you know, the right people. And that's, that's what I did. I went, you know, I, I met, a, I met a ton of people in San Francisco In San Francisco is kind of hot to, to be an investor in a small company and nobody knows about, you know what I mean? It's kind of like the thing that you talk about it at the bar. And it was, I, I felt very confident that I could get over this hump. And I was very certain that once we get the tech to work, everything else is, it will be easier. And then from there, I mean, now you guys have hit a great growth trajectory at the, the latest I've seen is a half a billion dollar valuation, but I could be wrong on that. So I, I, I'm curious, what's the goal with outreach? So um, another business quote is that you can always rely on the divine discontent of your customer. And in the moment that you give them something, something amazing, something that makes their life really, really better, that will last a few months before that is tried and and, and normal and they want more. Mm-hmm. So as we continue to make companies more efficient in generating revenue, and as we continue to sort of get reps to be more efficient in what they do, and as we continue to make that customer buying experience better every day, it's sort of a never ending job if you think about it. Because the customer journey, so revenue, so for us, our true north is revenue efficiency. Well, I should have started with that. So what we solve as a company is we, we make our customers more revenue efficient. And that means an SDR being more efficient in reaching out and, and connecting with a prospect in a way that educates a prospect. That means an AE being better at closing the deal, meaning anticipating uh, conversations, getting better at discovery, getting better at the closing, and then moving down to a customer success manager and making him better at communication or her better at communicating with, with her customers and, and expanding, successing, cross-selling or, 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 or upgrading or renewing. So that entire customer journey for us is really our, our playground. And we will continue to to make companies more revenue efficiency as long as there is opportunity to do so. Got it. Okay. Well, I but I guess from like a success standpoint, like are you are you tied to or or driven by I want to build the best company that I can? Is it you just love the the thought of solving these problems for customers? Is it, you know, hey, I was born to be an entrepreneur and like this is what just makes me feel alive? Like what actually drives you on maybe you're having a bad day, but that that picks you back up? Yeah, and that's a great question. So there is four levels of of motivation, if you would. And and each of us at, at the company or even in our life are motivated by different things at different stages of our life. So the first level of motivation is fear. Fear drives you to the many things fear is what drove us to 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 burn it hot and, and build outreach mostly because we were afraid of of being a failure and going back to our regular job like we were we were afraid of of going out of business there are so many things that we were afraid of that sort of you know drove us to build it and as we started getting momentum that we hit the second level of motivation which is greed right at this point we're we're, we're, we're signing customers, we're making money, we're getting paid, we're signing contract, things are growing fast. You know, we went, you know, we hit a million in less than six months of AR. And, and that, you know, that really feels good. But at that point, that wears off too. And that's when it gets into the other outside factors of motivation. So once you're, you stop being motivated by greed and you have customers that, you, that, that their, their livelihood depend on outreach, now you're motivated by duty. When somebody's sales operations, when somebody's shop, when somebody's business is depending on outreach being up and running well and, and we innovating on their behalf, 
Now you have the sense of duty that is somebody else's name on the line, not just yours. And, 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 and that duty eventually evolves into love. And, and, and that's sort of like the goal for, for all of us is that to make sure that we are operating at a point of like, we love what we do because we love our customers. We love seeing them succeed. We love our coworkers. We love seeing them succeed. So for me, the, the motivation is extrinsic, meaning it comes from the outside and from seeing people succeed. And that's kind of like a drug if you think about it. It's kind of like the thing that makes you get out of bed and run to work is the fact that you're making somebody else's life better and that there's a lot of people out there that are in pain that need to be, that need to be resolved. So knowing that that's what drives you now, knowing the feeling of that drug per se, like if you were to restart your career, would you still have put in the, the time at Amazon and Microsoft or would you have gone into something else like would you have gone into entrepreneurship earlier or do you think that those experiences were necessary to have the success you have now you know i i really dislike revisioning history i cannot tell you what would have happened if you know the life that you lived is the life that you lived and the only thing you can control is the life that you're living right now in your future to a degree so i don't i don't know i don't know the answer to that question that's a good way to think about it that you only have the present let's talk about the culture of outreach a little bit and i've seen articles where you're going around and you're fist bumping people in the morning and like how how do you how do you motivate your employees and how do you cultivate such a strong culture that's a that's a great question so you have to start always with with your with your values so one of the things that we did early is sort of cement our core values early to make sure, and, and we, we have seven, we sort of, you know, nail down the first five first and then sort of move on to the next two, you know, a little bit later. But the core values allow you to 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 give people guidance in absence of, of a manager or a leader or somebody more experienced. So that's, that's you know, of course, that's, that's the first step. And then because you're a small company, the people that are around you when you start will be the ambassadors of your culture when you're bigger. And I hire, you know, there's a lot of things about what you hire for. You hire for culture, you hire for fit, you hire for intellectual horsepower. There's one thing that I look to hire for in general, and that is energy. Because as a, as a company that is growing, you can never have enough of it. And yes, you will make exceptions for some people who are, you know, energy sort of drags as opposed to energy sources. And, and this, it's fine to have it um, sort of as a portfolio, but you have to think about it as a portfolio, meaning you have to think about like how many energetic people do I have in a team? How many people do I need to have energy versus people who are taking energy from you? Mm. So that, that's, that's the, second, the, the second sort of point. And the third point is that just like motivation, there is, there is very le- various levels of winning that, that some of them re- are reinforcing the culture. And, and winning doesn't just mean winning deals, making the number, et cetera. Winning could mean anything. Could, meaning could, could, winning could be solving a ticket. Winning could be, you know, um, getting product out. Winning could be, you know, finding a use case that didn't exist before. And one of the things that I'm very conscious about is that you always look to win as a team. So when you win as an individual, you're liable, you know, your winning is sort of ephemeral, right? You go home, you win, you feel good. But at that point, you, you're, it's not going to be sustained. But when you win as a team, your winning is way more sustained. You know, because it becomes lore, it becomes a story that people tell to other people and sort of like the word expands. And what and when you get used to winning as a team, then then it, it and then evolves to winning as a company. And then the company itself sort of celebrates 
pulls itself from the you know from its own bootstraps. So the the secret in my mind is to cultivate this thinking of as a you're always winning as a team and an individual contributed to something, but the team is the one that is always winning. And when the company and the team are winning, then your culture is very very self sustaining. How do you encourage that team aspect, especially with I could see in certain divisions that's more natural to happen versus say a sales team where you know I'm a rep I care about my number I want to hit my quote I want to get my commission and getting people to think as a team in that aspect and I'm sure other teams too is is probably pretty difficult it, so it is but there is always a way to do it and and I you know that that is a never sort of ending task as a as a leader is how do you cultivate that that winning as a team mentality and and you you're going to have to create um, sometimes what seems to be arbitrary challenges that are challenges nonetheless. Like, you know, I, 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 um, I used to, I don't do it as often, but I used to sit down fairly frequently with my support team and I will take a ticket along with them and I will solve that ticket. And, and what that showed me is that every, every ticket that you solve for a customer, be that a question or be that a bug or be that some kind of like process problem that they have, it's, it's a one battle in its own way and that it was won by the entire team. And those are the ones you celebrate. And that's in support, mind you, which is, you know, you wouldn't think of it as a, as a, as a winning team kind of mentality, but it is. The same thing with success, you know, a customer renewal or a customer, you know, the moment, one of the things that we do that is fairly different is that we measure our success by active users. So we, we count on a weekly basis um, or even on a daily basis, how many people are, are deriving value from the platform by taking manual activities in the platform. And, and everybody has, a, a, to a degree, is connected to that number. So every time the number goes up or down, or every time we push the number in a particular direction, you know, every team has a reason to celebrate because they were contributing to that. So a, a way for you to cascade that into every team is sort of what really allows you to then drive, you know, that team mentality within the company. Interesting. And do you highlight that in like, I don't know, a weekly meeting or email or, hey, guys, the, the active users, you know, doubled from six months ago or what, anything like that? You highlight that in every conversation, mm. in every in every meeting, in everything you do. Like you're, it has to run through your your veins. At Amazon, um, this is I don't know that this has been written about, but before they started Amazon Web Services, one of the things, one of the people knew, like across the company, people knew the contribution margin of every product line at all times, because that allows you to use to make for you to make investments in both technology and marketing to figure out how do I drive more traffic or more users to this particular, you know, is part of the store. So, and, and, what, and, and the reason why that was important is that, is that it creates this mentality of being data-driven and that you're always going to make a decision that is going to accrue to the benefit of the company. You see what I mean? Mm. Because you will go into a meeting, talk about, you know, this, that, or the other, but all of a sudden you'll be like, all right, so how is this impact contribution margin for the store that you're talking about? And all of a sudden you're back, you're back into creating value for the company. So you have to pick a few true north metrics that allows everybody to rally around that. And, and that creates a milestone moment that, that makes the team you know, think about winning as a team. I love that philosophy. And I think that's, it, it's, it's easier said than done, but the, the ability to get everyone working as a team obviously would have, have great benefits for, for the company as a whole and for the teams in general um, and the chemistry there. And I think that not only does that help the bottom line, but that helps with the culture too, because then you're seeing, hey, you know, I've I enjoy working on this team because my my team wins are being celebrated and it's kind of a a cycle that just keeps repeating itself and, and adds value to to everyone in the organization. 
That's right. One of my favorite books, it's um, Team of Teams by General McChrystal. And in that book, he makes a point that that the concept of leadership is moving from being that you know leader re- leading from the front or the strongest or the smartest or the one with the best ideas, the one that is doing everything for you, the one that is saving the day. It's moving from the concept of that to the concept of a gardener in which all you're doing all day long is going around empowering things, removing weeds, watering, making sure that everybody's healthy, like the teams are healthy. So removing rocks that kind of that's the kind of mentality you have to think about in this new and in this new environment in which you need teams to run independently companies to be agile performance to continuously go up and that's a huge piece of just removing the ego right it's not about even though you're the ceo it's not about you it's about the teams and making them feel special and making them feel like you know they're providing the value that they are that's exactly right and that is the one thing that you do need to lead from the front is that you remove your own ego in front of everybody. So for instance, um, one of the things that I do is that I don't have a desk. Like I don't have an office. I don't even have a desk. I have that. De- my desk is whatever I happen to be sitting that week or that month because it's an area that I need to focus on. And the moment that problem is solved, I move, I move somewhere else. So what I have is a chair. I have this old, <laughs> have this old wooden beat up chair, banker chair from the depression era, like the 1930s or 1950s. I- exactly what area but it's old and it's, it's sort of like iconic right because everybody knows where i'm sitting by finding that chair you find that chair you find me because that's where i'm sitting that particular week or that particular day that's unreal where, where'd you get the chair i i, I bought it off craigslist a, a long time ago somewhere down in the peninsula and then just it stuck with me that i really like that chair and as people make fun of the chair i like you know i'm, I'm pretty stubborn so i'm like the, the more people make fun of the chair the more i like embrace a chair you know what i mean <laughs> so like you know that's awesome we're you know fundraising get a bit of bigger offices we're getting this you know fancy chairs with like ergonomic and like you know 50 different springs that you know and i'm like no i'm sticking with my chair you know what i mean and as and as sort of we we grew you know the chair became more iconic because it's like it's it's small it's hard it's you know, it looks unpleasant. Like it has all these things that make it that make it stand out. That's <laughs> that's pretty hilarious. Um, I want to do a quick pivot here. Like I mentioned, I got some great questions from the audience, and I want to also take it a little bit towards um, a sales angle because, well, it makes sense. I mean, you were in sales. Much of being a CEO is selling, but you're also working with, you know, the company's sales teams to make them more productive and you have you obviously work with your own sales team. So, you know, I guess you know one question I would have is if someone was starting their sales career now, you know, say as an SDR, which is something you're very familiar with, what do you think are some of the pitfalls that uh, a rep may fall into that you see pretty frequently? What I've seen a lot um, in my career is when a rep joins and you know, he, he, he happens to make the number, blow it out of the water, close a lot, and get this momentum behind, behind that person, behind him or her. They sort of, um, the winning makes you sloppy. And I see many reps sort of start strong and sort of fall out of grades the moment that, you know, they take a couple of bad calls, deals that were, that were committed did not close, you know, the quarter didn't come in the way they expected things that sort of could be within or outside of their power sort of change. And the difference in what a, in what a rep does day in and day out and, and what a, say, a developer or a customer service person does day in and day out is that your, your score clears. 
either at the end of the month or at the end of the quarter, depending on the company you are. And you have to have this mindset in which in which you have to clear the score. Like it's very hard for you to forget your wins or forget your losses, but you have to. And that is the one number one attribute that that sort of that in my mind sort of could could make you or break you as a rep. And that and that you take the learnings. You, you're as a student of the game. You take the learnings. You, what do you learn here? And then you apply it to your next deal in such a way that you're constantly evolving. But don't rest on your laurels ever. And unfortunately, success mm. is not very a good teacher. Failure. So in, in, in some senses, like you, yes, you have to win, but you also have to relish the failures because those are your learning moments. So you have to continue going. And if you're winning a lot and you're not failing, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. But then go like be hungrier for advice. Like go talk to other reps. Go listen to other people's calls. Like go find who's better at the game than you are and get better. You see what I mean? And that is, that is really hard, especially when you're on top. So the, the biggest falls from grace are people who make the, you know, huge numbers, one or two quarters in a row, blow it out of the water, and then they got nothing. They drain their pipeline or they got sloppy or they, you know, something happened that sort of made him, made him, made him shaky. I think something that I've seen work too, if you're having a few, you're stringing a few good months or a few good quarters together is to, or what I think is important is for the rep to set their own goals, right? So like if you say, hey, your goal is to set how you know 50 meetings or if it's a, a quota it's a million dollars for for the year and you're hitting that goal easily right every quarter then it's like well who says i can't sell five million right and it's like thinking thinking above and beyond what your manager tells you you should sell based on your quota but trying to look out from that and and trying to you know multiply on that um, but i think that takes a lot of discipline to do that's exactly right or say your goal is go teach somebody else to do it that's the other way to cut it, right? Instead of, okay, so you hit your number and you're able to to hit 20% above your number, 10% above your number comfortably. You know how to do it. You have a method. Now turn around and find a body and make them better. Like that, that actually is sharpens your skill way more when you're able to teach your skill to somebody else because now you're an individual contributor and a coach. Those people are priceless. Like the people who can both sell and coach, you know, are, you know, unicorns. So like think about your career in that broad of a way. I think that that goes back to the thought of the team as well, right? Like if you only cared about your own contributions, you wouldn't care what the rep next to you did. But if you're actually on that same value path of we're all working towards the goal of, you know, driving the revenue, fixing customers' problems, we want the highest um active users, like I want to help my teammate get there too and and um you know, I think that at least from what I've heard and, and what I've seen early in my career is that being a good salesperson does not replicate to being a good leader in the slightest. It, it's two totally different skill sets. It, it is, but but it also doesn't prevent you from being a good leader. So being a good salesperson doesn't make you doesn't make you anything. It just makes you a good salesperson for the moment. So just so I, I guess what I'm aggregating, what I'm sort of circling around is that is that find out what your passion is, and if your passion is make more money, then go make more money. But if your passion is, is perhaps being a leader or, or, or you know, you know, figure out your path to VP of sales or director or CRO, et cetera, then it's start. And the easiest way to start is coach, coach somebody else, turn somebody else into a great rep, then turn your team into a great performing team and then help your enablement team figure out how to, how to get their job better. So start working your career earlier than, than you would think. Like start helping other people out. And, and that is the definition of leader. Maybe on the same path here, but I, I saw an article you wrote a while ago about 
some of the SDR bashing that happens on LinkedIn. And it's, it's something that has happened, like just really increasingly happens where uh, a rep will send just really not a good email and the person will highlight it. And if they're nice, they'll blank out the person's name. But sometimes I've seen their names in there and they're just ranting about how bad of an email it is or how bad of a call it is. So let's say I'm a rep and someone just puts me on blast on LinkedIn and you're my, my manager, you're the CEO. Like, What would you tell me or what's your reaction to that? So the first thing, if I'm if you're a rep and you got blasted on LinkedIn and I'm your manager, the first thing I need to go is make sure that you are okay, that your mindset is in the right spot, because as a as a as a as a as a troop leader or as a, you know as a, as sort of the leader of that team, when you have so like the the one thing, the the first and last thing that rep has is his mindset or her mindset. If you're not in the right mindset, if you're not feeling that you're ready to help somebody that you're ready to educate somebody, that you're ready to go and win, you're not going to be productive. Not only you're not going to be productive, you have, you're liable to bring everybody else down. So my number one job is to make sure that your mind is okay, that you understand that this is a mistake and that person is, that blasted you is just not right. So you, it's okay to make mistakes. You will, send, you will make many mistakes. You will make mistakes on, 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 on an email, on a phone call, on, on a LinkedIn note. Like there's, there's 50,000 ways of, 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 of making mistakes. And you just happen to trip on one. No big deal. Like you have to get their mindset right. So once you salvage the rep and, and you get into to sort of get over this hump, then, then the question is, what do you do with this sort of blaster, right? Like how do you address it? And you know, given that it happened to me, uh, my first thing was to reach out to that person and, and sort of ask them if they will give my rep feedback instead of blasting it on LinkedIn. What would you do differently? How would you like to be approached? How will you, is, 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 it was, what was wrong on the email? Would you like to get a call? Would you like a social touch first? Like, how would you like to be approaching? How can my rep learn from that experience? What I, not, what I notice is that most people who are, you know, blindingly blasting you on LinkedIn, they do it because they're dehumanizing the rep. And when you bring the humanity back to the rep and you realize this is a young kid trying to learn the ways of how to sell better, how to, and selling in my mind is educating, right? Selling is empathizing and adding value. So you apologize for not adding value. So I'm sorry I didn't add value. I took time of your day. Clearly, clutter your inbox. How do I add value? Like, this is what we do. We think you need what we do. Could you explain to me how could I explain that better? And get the entire conversation into a different group. And then sort of, you know, unfortunately, LinkedIn is a, you know, it's a, a record. So people stay out there and, and, you know, everybody will see it. But at least you get the rep and the person in a better spot. When we're, you know, back into collaborating, back into making, moving things forward. Look, making the sales rep is an age old profession that to this point has built, you know, what we are, right? Like a capitalistic society is based on, you know, the moving of, of goods and, and products. And they, somebody has to explain to somebody else how they work. You know, somebody has to bring you the innovation. So this will never end. So blasting somebody for doing the job is, you know, it, it, you catch somebody at a bad moment and all, and there you go, there you have it, right? Or you get a marketer who is, who, you know, he's bent up out of shape because of the language or the approach and, and, and you know, they, they, will, they will give it to you. But, you know, we're all humans and we sort of have to give each other a little bit of the benefit of the doubt and just move forward. Yeah, that's good advice. And I mean, I've, I've been there, not on LinkedIn, but, you know, everyone that's been in sales, I think, for an extended period of time has gotten some sort of pretty rude reply or really rude on on the phone. And I think it's it's big that 
you got to shake it off. You got to go on to the next play and stay even keel if you're the rep. And you know, I do want to highlight one thing that you said there that I think is worth re- restating is that sales is all about empathy and adding value and putting yourself in the person's shoes and figuring out what is this person going to find valuable? What problem do they have? How can I solve it? Um, and those are the two things. But the, but the third thing that you did not mention and I didn't mention, I'm going to say it right now, is that third sales is about experimentation. Meaning you can only you can only find how to add value if you're trying new things. And by trying new things, you will piss people off. And getting somebody pissed off at you just makes you understand what the boundary is of your experiments. You see what I mean? Yeah. Too much frequency. What is too much frequency? What is personalization? Well, you know, what kind of personalization? Well, you know, how much is too much calling? Like what are the boundaries of of your of your attempt to educate somebody? They're real boundaries and, and ignoring them just confuses the argument. Because we're humans, we don't come with like a well-defined API on how to interact with each other. So all you have is these tries. You see what I mean? All you can do is try. Yeah. I mean, and, and that it's it's trial by fire. And it, it's different depending on who you're selling to and what you're selling and what your tone of voice is. And, you know, we're all just kind of learning by doing. So I think that's good advice. And it, it, it helps you to be a little easier on yourself, too, if you're having that bad, you know, say you have a bad quarter. All right, well, let's take a step back. Let's reflect. All right, this is what I've been doing what's the small tweak or the few small tweaks I can make that can maybe put me back on the right path? That's exactly right. So you have a rap sheet of accomplishments. You've been through a lot of the struggles and, and some of the dips, and it seems like you know outreach is, is on a tremendous path. What do you think is one thing that's holding you or outreach IO back from reaching the next level? That's a great question. We are we are in a very in a very new nascent category. So you know, for people in the Bay or people who are you know technophiles who try new things, outreach is sort of tried and true. And you know, you should have something like a sales engagement tool like like outreach. But we live in a very small bubble. If you think about the you know the the, the, the sort of nine million sales reps in the U.S. that are non-retail. Uh, you know, if you combine all the players in the space, you don't even get to like even, you know, 5% of it, not even 1% of it, I think. So what, what is really holding us back is the fact that we have to educate the market and the market, the market has a lot of noise. So a lot of people will come and tell you, you know, we can lift revenue by X percent, right? Like everybody tries to attach whatever they do to some lift and something. So that will create a lot of noise in the market. But in reality, the market is very nascent and we're just getting started here. So what's holding us back is really how do we educate more people more broadly faster? And that's, that's really the, 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 the limiting factor. The second limiting factor, you know, believe it or not, is cloud adoption. So you know, as much as you think Salesforce is ubiquitous, Salesforce is just blazing sort of the path of people moving to the cloud. And not everybody's quite there yet. So you know, when we go to an enterprise company and we tell them, yeah, this thing is in the cloud, hosting in AWS, like immediately people will be like, wait, 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 whoa. Well, you're reading my email and connecting my calls. And you're not on-prem. How's that work? So, so at that point, we're like, you know, we can educate you in the cloud. Like, we don't have those kind of resources. We have to wait for the big boys or, you know, big girls in the space, like, you know, Amazon and Microsoft and Salesforce to come in and sort of, like, lay the path of cloud for us to come in. So those are, in my mind, sort of the biggest limiters for growth. Interesting. Well, I think in, in one is, you know, in the education, it's just, kind of a volume play and it's it, it happens over time well i guess the second one does too um i think it's only anyone that's in this space will agree it's only a matter of time until you know those three aws microsoft salesforce you know 
keep saturating, keep taking over the market. So yeah, I think you guys are in a, in a great spot. I think, think about this, like Salesforce was started in 1999. It's, we're in 2018. They're still growing at a very nice clip and still evangelizing the, the cloud. So, you know, it's, it's, when you say a matter of time, you're talking 10, 20 years. And yes, the time in the internet gets compressed. So let's, let's say it's 10, still 10 years. You know what I mean? So we're like, we're just getting started. And that goes back to, I think the first thing you said, uh, you know, after the Bulletproof Coffee was being strategically patient and, and playing the long game. That's right. Awesome, man. Well, uh, you've been generous with your time. A few things before we wrap up. The last question would be, if, if you have any last words to uh, the millennial audience out there, they're hungry, they want to get better. Um, and then where can we find you, know, you and where can we find Outreach.io? I know that you guys have I mentioned this or alluded to it earlier, but you've been on a tremendous clip. You're growing like crazy. You know, I, I think I've seen some either awards or or praise around the culture that you've you've developed there up in Seattle. So let us know where we can find you and and find more about your solution too. Yeah, so you know, please visit outreach.io. I write my team writes a lot of blogs uh, on on the site. I, I you also check me out on, on LinkedIn. I tend to to write my my thoughts my thoughts there. I I have an email that I write to my company almost every weekend, where we sort of you know talk about the things that are going on, and I'm gonna start putting those on LinkedIn as well because I think that a lot of people could benefit from it. In terms of in terms of advice, again I, I go back to the sort of the four stages of of motivation and make sure that when when you're doing work when you're calling somebody when you're cold calling, you know put yourself in their shoes, and and think yourself as a doctor. That's the thing. That's the best advice I got you know, in, in my sales career is think yourself as a, as a doctor, you're trying to help a patient. Sometimes the patient doesn't want to be helped, but you have to educate him. And if you don't, it's your moral duty to, 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 to get into medicine. So do it, do it for duty, do it for love. Don't do it for the money. Love it, man. That's awesome. Well, Manny, I appreciate you dropping this knowledge. Uh, I wish you the best of luck. Um, and for everyone listening out there, we'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you. I told you. I told you that was going to be a good one. I hope you liked it. Uh, I've been re-listening to it and just love it. So thank you to Manny for, for coming on. Thanks again, to Max, for the intro there. Top three takeaways. You know the drill. Uh, number one, strategically patient, tactically impatient. Very similar to Gary V's uh, micro patience uh, or micro speed macro patience. So love that. Uh, love the thought of the four levels of motivation and trying to get to duty and love or love's really the goal. Uh, but fighting through fear and greed and duty to get to love, I think is, I've just never heard that before. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and winning makes you sloppy. You have to clear the score. You know, uh, Bill Gates says that success is a lousy teacher and he's very, he's very true in that. And Manny, you know, probably got that from his days at Microsoft or or some of the lessons he learned from Jeff Bezos. So great interview. I loved having Manny on. Uh, let me know what you think. Come over to TomAlamo.com. Uh, please hit me on Tommy Tahoe on any social media networks. Uh, rate, review, subscribe to the show. That would mean the world to me. Let me know what you think. I would really do appreciate any feedback. I take it to heart. I want to make the show as valuable for you guys as possible. So thank you so much. Let's get after the rest of the week. It's early in August. Uh, it's the dog days. People are sleeping. People are resting. People are on vacation. If you're not, let's get after it. Let's find some distance. Have a good one. Out.